Welcome in. This is a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown. I'm Rick Gaiman. I'm coming to you from Blue Wire Studios at the beautiful Win Las Vegas. And this is a solo pod, something a little bit different. So I knew a couple of days ago that I was going to be doing this solo. So I I did what I normally do. I threw up the bat signal and I said, okay, uh, what can I offer to you, the listener, to you, the, of those watching on YouTube? Is there a data theory? Is there a concept that maybe you have considered over the years and never had anything to back back it up with? I was uh, overwhelmed uh, by the response. So I got a, a ton of uh, questions. I got a ton of comments. I got a ton of ideas. So this is probably going to be something that we're going to have to do uh, multiple times here in the future. But I narrowed it down to uh, the ideas and concepts that I thought were timely that I thought were valuable. And of course, that I could actually investigate. You know, there were a lot of really good, almost borderline golf conspiracy theories that I would have no way of investigating with data or anything that I have access to. So maybe we'll put those on the back burner and we'll come back to them at a future time. But I have narrowed this down. And uh, quite honestly, this was a lot of fun. This is something that I've uh, conceived in the past. This is something that I always want to think about. You know, every time it rains on the PGA Tour, I get a question or a dozen questions that are like, how does this, who does this help? Does it help the bombers? And it's like, well, maybe, you know, it's the guys that carry the ball further because you don't get as much rollout. It was that kind of idea, but we kind of put it on steroids. We took it to the extreme a little bit for this episode. Um, If there is something, that you take away from this or that jog something in your brain that you would like me to investigate in the future. Maybe this becomes a little bit of a running segment. So feel free to tweet it at me. Uh, You can leave a comment if you're watching on YouTube. Hey, if you're feeling frisky, leave it in a five-star rating and review. That always helps as well. But let's jump right into this because it is indeed Masters Week. And there's probably no better way to start than with a Masters data theory, a concept. And this is one that if you're following me on uh, on Twitter and on YouTube, you've probably heard me reference before, but I've really gone deep into the archives to see what type of data and how we can relate it to the masters. And uh, now that we have it going on this week, obviously I thought it would be a good time to really lead into this. So uh, what we have is a situation where a lot of the top level PGA Tour players, the best golfers in the world, you hear this all the time, they're trying to peak. They're trying to peak four times a year. It's the first full week in April and then once a month after that. They want to be in shape right now for major championship season. And you'll see that in their schedules, right? Uh, Rory McIlroy is a perfect example. Just for the first time in basically his career, did he play the week before the Masters, something he normally doesn't do. So he's shaking up his schedule. It, It was not a whim that he changed his schedule. I'm sure there was a lot of thought and energy and data that went into something like that. So they're obviously trying to peak for these four major championships a year. And I thought it would be nice to look at the 90 days leading into Augusta National, right? That is the time that all these golfers are trying to get to their best. They're making sure that they're in form. And uh, my friend and colleague over at CBS Sports, Kyle Porter, he's tweeted out a, a version of this stat in the past. And I believe what he does is he looks at Tita Green play in the 90 days leading up to the Masters. I used uh, the full-on strokes gain total numbers, not just Tita Green play. So you might get a little different of results here. But the idea around this is the golfers who are playing best before 
the Masters are obviously ones that end up doing very well when this event gets going. So historically, golfers who gain at least a stroke and a half per round in the 90 days leading up to the Masters, the winner generally comes out of that group. Now, if you watch and follow along, you know I'm not a huge trends guy, right? I think a lot of trends are not necessarily predictive. However, when you get a situation where it's about lead-in form, I do believe it's a lot more predictive than a lot of the other trends that we can get. So to put this into perspective, uh, the one and a half strokes gained per round in the 90 days, that's what we're looking at here. In 2012, uh, Bubba was in that category. In 2013, Adam Scott was in that category. 2014, Bubba did it again. He was in that category. Jordan Spieth was in that category in 2015. You could include even Danny Willett in 2016, although he had a sample size issue, right? You know, uh, obviously only, he only had eight PGA Tour rounds leading into that year that he ended up winning the Masters. But if you expand it to smaller sample sizes, he's also in the group. Uh, 2017 and 2018, we whiffed on them. 2019, Tiger was in the group. And 2020, DJ was in the group. So you're talking about a, and Hideki was not. So you're talking about what, seven of the last 10, uh, seven of the last 11, in which golfers who gained at least a stroke and a half per round in the 90 days leading into the Masters are often winning. Now, for this year, what does that list look like? Uh, there are a shocking 17 names on this list. 17. And I'll be very candid with you. I'm, I'm not recording this uh, the week of the Masters. I'm a week early. So the Valero Texas Open is going on right now. Uh, so these these golfers could change, but for the most part, there's only a couple of guys that could. Rory McIlroy or Bryson DeChambeau's guys that could really affect this stat by their play at the Valero Texas Open. So... Um, the fact that we have 17, 17 of these golfers in general is already fairly insane because when you look back historically at those years that I referenced, going back to 2012, we've never had 17 guys that fit this category, that fit this criteria, that fit this trend. So it not only speaks to how good the golfers are playing right now, but it speaks to how many of them are playing that well right now. So we've never seen anything like it. To put it into perspective, uh, 2021, we only had 11 guys that matched the criteria. Uh, the next highest, 2012, we had 16, but generally it's much fewer than that. So we've got a depth of tour where all of our best players are playing at their absolute best right now. So 17 golfers, who are they? I can run through these. The names kind of make sense, right? The names make sense. Adam Scott, right off the bat, these are alphabetical. These aren't, these aren't numerical. So don't, don't hold me to it. Adam Scott, Cam Smith, Daniel Berger, Hideki Matsuyama. Hideki's playing better right now by a mile than he was in the lead up to his actual victory last year in 2021. Remember, he wasn't really keen on the state of his game leading into the Masters last year, getting a much better version of himself right now. Uh, Joaquin Neiman, John Rahm, Justin Thomas, Matt Fitzpatrick. Those shouldn't be much of a surprise to you, right? Uh, Joaquin's already won this year. John Rahm has been contending week in and week out for uh, an entire 12 months. Justin Thomas is in there. And then Matt Fitzpatrick, who has not yet hoisted a trophy in this 90-day window, but he has just been piling up top 10 finishes. No surprise to see any of those names on that list. Then you go down to Patrick Cantlay, Rory McIlroy, Russell Henley, and Scotty Scheffler. Yeah, Scotty's the hottest player in the world. Scotty's the new number one. Takes the throne, takes the crown away from John Rahm. Of course, he's going to be on this list. Maybe the big surprise here is Russell Henley, right? And, and Russell Henley has had a lot of really good weeks in which he's played three good rounds and maybe gives it away a little bit on 
Sunday. Maybe fails to close it out, but it's not enough to remove him from this group. Russell Henley, another golfer with plenty of Georgia ties, uh, knows Augusta National very well. And then we round out this group with another handful of uh, Shane Lowry, Tom Hoagie, Terrell Hatton, young Victor, and Will Zalatoris. Probably no surprises there. And, and this does indeed include the European tour stats. So anything that we able, we're able to have strokes gain total on, you're going to see these names on the top of the board. So uh, Victor, no surprise. Will, no surprise. Hoagie's been great. Maybe the biggest surprise there is Terrell Hatton. That's a guy who uh, played much better on the Euro side of things, racked up his strokes gains there. Uh, not as good on the PGA Tour, but when you start to factor into the match play. So if you think about it, one of these 17 historically often going to win the Masters. It's the best players playing at the best time. And these are the names that we're seeing. It's deeper than it's ever been. The, the good players are the best they've ever been. It's a shocking list. So I wouldn't be surprised to see any one of these guys uh, slip on the green jacket come Sunday afternoon. Hopefully it's Victor. Hopefully it's Will. One of those guys, young guys, that can certainly get the job done. Uh, moving on. Mark Fox asked about what I consider to be a Frankenstein golfer. Uh, a Frankenstein golfer to me is one that we piece together, right? Little Dr. Frankenstein action, right? The monster's name wasn't Frankenstein. The doctor's name was Frankenstein. So we'll play Dr. Frankenstein here. We'll piece together the best golfer that we can. So Mark Fox says, thinking out loud here, but if you wanted to create the optimal golfer, what percentage of strokes would be gained across all four strokes gained categories? He notes there's a few different angles on this, and there's probably more than a few, Mark, but I agree with you. So he says, one, who's the perfect strokes gained golfer? And in the last 100 winners, what percentage of strokes gained came from each category on average? I kind of like this. And Andy and I have talked about this on the scramble before, the idea of putting together the best possible golfer. It doesn't do anything except make for really fun, great conversation. But the second part to Mark's question, which is looking at winners and the type of categories that they gained in when they won the event, it's a little bit predictive, maybe not predictive, but it gives you an idea of the paths to victory. We've seen guys like Kevin Na gain 11 strokes with the putter in route to victory. We've seen Justin Thomas lose strokes with the putter in route to victory. But if we start adding those up 100 at a time, maybe you get a situation where there is something a bit predictive about it. Uh, can we cut to the window cam? I've got, we've got people out here. Hey, how are you? This is the win. So we've got people walking by. We've got some fans outside. Good to see. Good to see everybody. Thank you, boys. Um, the idea of the Frankenstein golfer to me is... Uh, one that always catches my attention. So Mark, I'm going to answer your question in, in two parts here. So I looked at the last 100 rounds to find the best possible golfer that we can find. And the only natural way to do this is via the four major strokes gained categories. It's off the tee, it's approach, it's around the green, and it's putting. So when you look at the last 100 rounds for all of these golfers, who do we find? John Rahm, gaining nearly a stroke off the tee per round over those 100 rounds. He's driving the ball for us. What I also love about John Rahm, and Andy and I have talked about this uh, in recent weeks, there's a lot of different ways to gain strokes off the tee. Bryson DeChambeau gains a ton of strokes off the tee. John Rahm gains a ton of strokes off the tee. They are doing it in two completely different ways, right? Bryson is doing it with distance and hoping to be accurate enough. John Rahm, to me, when you just watch him, has all the shots. He's got uh, the nine windows, that drill that we often hear Tiger Woods 
talk about. He's got the nine windows. It's high, it's low, it's the mid-flight. He can draw it, he can fade it, he can do whatever he needs. So no surprise to see John Rahm number one here statistically, but it's also nice that if we are putting together our Frankenstein golfer, we've got, we've got a guy that probably translates to a lot of different courses. Strokescan approach is probably the one that surprised me the most. It's not necessarily surprising that Paul Casey is the man that becomes our approach player, but it's surprising that he was that much better than everybody else. I mean, Victor was close. Will Zalatoris was close. Colin Morikawa was close, but 100 rounds. Paul Casey, number one, last 100 rounds. So right off the bat, we're gaining two strokes to the rest of the field in just ball striking alone. To put that into perspective, Victor, who over the last 50 rounds has been the best ball striker on planet Earth, he gains about a stroke and a half per round. So we've already gained a half a stroke in the ball striking categories to the best ball striker in the world. So you can see where this is going. We're going to find the perfect optimal golfer. We're going to find it very quickly, and we are going to make a ton of noise when we get out there and start playing this golfer on the course. Around the green's a little bit wonky. That's next. So the ideal golfer never uses his around the green play, right? And it's because you're hitting every single green. Uh, you don't have to worry about getting up and down anywhere. And the way that the strokes gain metrics work, the fact that around the green is a running stat, it is a, it is a counting stat, and some guys have a lot more opportunities than others. This is certainly the weakest part of our Frankenstein. This is, this is the weakest part, and it's the one that the data is a bit wonky on. The answer is Kevin Na. So he gains about over a, a half a stroke per round uh, to the field. Kevin Na's a Vegas guy. Might be walking around at the win right now. Who knows? Vegas, uh, Kevin Na gaining a half a stroke per round is our around the green player, but he's not our putter, right? And this is the other problem that we often have. Um, most uh, analysts want to lump in putting and around the green game and call it short game, which I, I, I agree with. I get it. But to say someone like a Victor Hovland has a weak short game, is it's not true. His around the green metrics aren't good, but he's a great putter. Very consistent putting stroke. Uh, gains to the rest of the tour. So it's not necessarily fair to lump those two together. So our putter, and boy, if we were playing in the Ryder Cup, we'd be able to summon quite a bit of magic here, is Ian Poulter. Ian Poulter gains just uh, over two-thirds of a stroke per round. So just to recap, John Ron, Paul Casey, Kevin Na, Ian Poulter. That's our Frankenstein. That's the optimal golfer. That golfer over the last 100 rounds is gaining 3.18 strokes per round. I could have stopped there. I could have stopped there and said, Mark, I've got your answer. Here's the optimal golfer. But 3.1, that, that number, it's it stuck in my brain. I was like, what do I know that number from? What do I know 3.18? That's a huge number. And of course, uh, that's the average strokes gained per round for Tiger Woods alone in 2009. Think about that. I just went through the last 100 rounds and I cherry picked the best golfer from every single aspect on the PGA Tour. That golfer is the 2009 version of Tiger Woods. It's it's absolutely insane. And I love that we have a little bit of a comp here because 3.18 strokes per round wins you a lot of golf tournaments. So for example, Tiger Woods played 17 events in the year that he was the optimal golfer by himself. He won six of those, six of 17, over a third of the time, he's the one hoisting the trophy on Sunday afternoon. In those 17 starts, 14 top tens. Think about that. 
three times in a year, Tiger Woods did not finish inside the top 10. It's bonkers. And it makes sense when you start realizing how head and shoulders above the rest of the field he was. This is not, um, it's not a Tiger Woods dedicated stat, right? It's, it's just, there's so many stats that we've become immune to and so many things that Tiger Woods has done that we've become immune to because what he did was not human. So hopefully being able to pick out the best golfer in every single aspect and realize that that's Tiger is nuts. The sickest part about that, 3.18 Tiger Woods, not even the best version of Tiger Woods. The 2008 version was even better, 3.8. It's I was going to say it's hard to quantify how much better uh, Tiger Woods was than the rest of the field in those years. It's not that hard to quantify. It was by far the best. No one was even close. And in today's modern game, which I admit, it's deeper, right? Everybody's better. The 100th best golfer is better now than he was when Tiger Woods was in his prime. He's still way better than that. It's just, it's, it's shockingly scary stuff to look at. The second part of Mark's question which I appreciate is looking back to last 100 winners. Now this is a bit um, this is a bit weird because it, it takes kind of putting weeks uh, usually guys to putt well, putt over their baseline to actually hoist a trophy. So I did. I went back and I looked at the last. Uh, it was actually more than the last 100 winners. It's all of the winners uh, since 2008. So it was uh, quite a few, obviously, and it was only the measured round. So obviously on the PGA tour, not every event is measured. They don't take the lasers everywhere. We don't always get the major championship data. So this is just the absolute measured events where we've got every shot and we can attribute the strokes gained to every single one of these categories. And the average winner since 2008, uh, obviously gains across the board. No surprise there. You're going to see a golfer who's playing well is going to win. 18% of the strokes gained have come off the tee. 34% have come on approach. 11% have come around the green. And 35% have come with the putter. So the two that stand out, approach and putting. We talk about that a lot, right? And that passes the eye test. It passes the sniff test. If you were to play a thousand rounds over time, Having the skill set off the tee of Rory McIlroy or of Bryson DeChambeau or of John Rahm gives you a huge edge because you're hitting so many shots. But over the course of 265 shots, over the course of four days, a very, very small sample size, approach and putting are the key. And that makes sense, right? How You have to be an absolute ceiling golfer to win a golf tournament on the PGA Tour. You have to be. There's just no, there's no doubt about it. You have to have a ceiling week. The ceiling weeks often come from guys who are throwing darts and then rolling the putts in. It might be guys like, you know, Bryson has won events where he's gained five or six strokes off the tee. Uh, you, it, that's, that's not the norm. That's the outliers of, of the winners on the PGA Tour. It's approach play and it's putting. So, Mark, it's, um, it's all about ceiling when it comes to victories. Now, if you took our golfer, if you took our Frankenstein golfer and rolled him out there, 3.18 strokes gained per round, and you ran him out there 20 times a year, what does he win? Tiger won six of them. Uh, obviously, there's more to just the strokes gain metrics than, uh, or j- just the winning than there is to the strokes gain metrics because obviously you can get into a situation where, uh, hey, how clutch are you? Can you get up and down? Can you roll one in on the 72nd hole to get yourself into a playoff? Things that Tiger Woods was obviously all able to do. And then to take it even further, Mark, because that's what we're doing today, 
This is like the nerdiest podcast ever. I'm speaking into the void about uh, data theories while people walk by in the hallway. There, there's a lot of confused looks on their faces. It, it, this is the nerdiest thing. Let's just go deeper. I tried to find some golfers that matched that 100, or excuse me, matched that average winning profile. So guys that gain maybe a third of their strokes on approach and a third of them uh, with the putter and they're good off the tee and they're good around the green. The one that stands out, the closest profile I could find, Sam Burns. And that makes sense, right? Doesn't this all start to make sense? I love it when the data backs up the eye test. Sam Burns now three victories in the last calendar year gains actually 60% of his strokes on approach, 50%, uh, or excuse me, 40, uh, excuse me, that was 40% on approach, 40% with the putter. Then you get small gains off the tee, small gains around the green. He is like the winning profile. And when he has ceiling weeks, he's going to win. That's why I've been so excited about Sam Burns for 18 months because he's the modern player. He's the guy. A couple other notables, uh, Seamus Power, believe it or not, is, is quite... Um, quite well-rounded, and you do get uh, positives uh, on approach play. You get positives with the putter. Uh, DJ is also on this list. Louis Ustase and Patrick Cantlay also on the list as well. Uh, there are just guys that have the upside. I, I looked at Xander Shoffley. So Xander Shoffley is kind of interesting. He gains a good bit off the tee, a good bit on approach, or at least of his strokes gains compared to his own baseline. Uh, but he's too well-rounded. And I talked about, about this a lot during the match play. Xander's floor, incredibly high. He's too well-rounded almost to tap into the ceiling, which is what you need to actually win. It's, it's a really jarring statistical breakdown when you realize what it actually takes to hoist the trophy. All right, thanks, Mark. Appreciate the question there. Tyler asks, is there any data to prove home cooking? If you're watching on the video, I did uh, air quotes there. Home cooking. The pros to sleeping in your own bed uh, during the course of the week, and does that correlate to better result, results overall? And if so, is it a stroke? Is it two strokes? So that's from Tyler. Thank you very much, Tyler. This one was probably the hardest one, Tyler, because we've got a situation where what do I define as home cooking, right? Do I say it's where you grew up? Do I say it's where you went to college? Do I give you credit for both of those? Do I say it's where you're living now, where you reside now? Do I give you credit for all three? We also have a situation where on the PGA Tour, we only go to, what, a dozen different states, a dozen different areas. Uh, there's a lot of guys who grew up in a place, went to college in a place, and currently reside in a place that we do not get access to on the PGA Tour. So I've already kind of had to rule those guys out. And if we just go state by state, what do we do with Texas? What do we do with California? What do we do with Florida? These are huge states. The conditions that you get in at Pebble Beach in Northern California on the sea, much different than that that you're going to get at PGA West at a California desert course. Two completely different styles. But for this purpose, we're going to have to draw some really hard lines here. So uh, what I've done is I've opted to take the city the golfer plays from. This is an official stat, believe it or not, in the golfer profile on the PGA Tour. So it's basically where they're residing right now. For the most part, a lot of the guys where they grew up, went to college, it overlaps, but I needed a data point to be able to say, this is what we're using. And I went state by state. We threw out all the states that golfers, uh, where they reside does not match something that we have on the PGA Tour. Other problems. 
sample size issues, right? I've got sample size issues that say, wow, so-and-so played well in his home state, but he's only played there twice. How can I attribute that to his home state? Maybe it's mom's cooking. Maybe it's sleeping in his own bed. Maybe it's just random. So I, I preface all of this by saying there are, there are flaws. <laughs> there are flaws in this. And what I ended up doing is taking uh, the strokes gain metrics for the golfer's home state and compared it to their uh, overall baseline uh, to see which golfers are best benefiting from Tyler's home cooking. 146 golfers qualified for this. Uh, you can imagine I had to throw out all the non-Americans. I had to throw out all the guys that don't have a tour stop in their home state. Of the 146 golfers, 71 gained strokes in their home state. Strokes gained home cooking. 71, that's less than half. 75 of them lost in their home state. I could stop right there. Maybe there is no home cooking, right? Maybe that doesn't exist because uh, we've got you losing in your home state more often than you are winning in your home state. The biggest winners of strokes gained home cooking. This is kind of, I, I don't know if this is surprising or not. Uh, Webb Simpson in North Carolina. Webb Simpson in North Carolina makes a lot of sense, right? So he gains 2.2 uh, strokes per round in his home state. Everywhere else, he gains 1.2. It's nearly a full stroke better in the state of North Carolina than not in the state of North Carolina. Tiger Woods in Florida. See, Tiger gets credit for Florida. Maybe he should get credit for California. No, no, no. In this exercise, he gets credit for Florida. He's a stroke and a half better in Florida than he is in any or in his all his other states combined. Uh, Jordan Spieth in Texas, big gainer, a stroke better in Texas. Patrick Cantlay, uh, this is actually kind of interesting because Cantlay has historically struggled in Florida. You get him in California, he is rocking and rolling. Uh, not as big of a gainer as Spieth, not as big of a gainer as Webb or Tiger, but he's about a third of a stroke better. Uh, gains 1.7 strokes per round in California. And I'll make all this data available in some way. Maybe I'll put a link in the description. You guys can have at this and mess around with it and figure it out yourself. But uh, Cantlay and Morikawa come out of California as uh, big winners. Looking at some of the um, like larger sample size guys. So what I did is I also wanted to kind of rule out sample size issues. If you start to say, hey, at least 10 rounds, Nate Lashley's great in Arizona. Uh, compared to his baseline. So there might be something to it. And I do think there are ecosystems, especially like here we are, we're talking about strokes gained ecosystems. This is fairly insane. The Arizona ecosystem is a unique one, right? And you could also cross that over to the California desert, but the desert vibe and desert golf, that's a thing. And reading greens with mountain complexes behind and trying to figure out what to do if you if you are playing out of the rocks and the gravel and uh, the cacti, like that's a real thing. So I do like it when um, you have a very specific kind of ecosystem and you see golfers that are finding really good success in those areas. Let's move on. Chalk bombs. This is from Andrew. Andrew DM'd me this. So uh, Andrew says, hey, Rick, love all your content. Appreciate you letting us bounce ideas off of you. Yeah, I mean, this is creating great content for me too, right? So I really appreciate it. Not sure how doable this is but would be interested to see what percentage of the time chalk hits. Chalk. How do we define chalk? And Andrew's already aware of this. He says, I'm not sure how you define this, but perhaps we can look at the percentage of top 10 finishes. 
And he says, this is where things got really crazy. I was like, Andrew, this is doable. I'll just look up the, um, I'll just look up the ownership percentages on, on DraftKings and I'll compare it to their finishes and I'll be done with this in five seconds. Andrew kind of threw me through a little bit of a, uh, you know, twist here. Cause he says, when meaning chalk, <laughs> I'm not just looking at 20% or more total owned, but looking at players that are 25 to 50% higher owned than the other players in their tier. Andrew's put me to work. I guess that's what I asked for, right? I, I asked for Andrew to put me to work here, but he's putting me to work right now. I've got to do a lot more calculations here. He understands that it's not just blindly following the chalk, but we've got to compare it to the rest of the peers. And it's, he says, does fading chalk over a larger sample make you money? Obviously, in any given week, it gives you leverage, but over time, are you just plus EV uh, blindly fading chalk? All right. Andrew, thank you. Much appreciated. This took me a lot longer than I originally anticipated. So there is kind of this theory around uh, ownership, especially in golf, which is an entirely unique sport, uh, that anytime a golfer gets to like 27% owned, you should probably just be avoided, right? That's kind of the theory that's out there because golf is such a volatile sport, such a random sport. It is played in different conditions and different courses every single week. And we've got golfers where they're independent contractors. They do not, or they're not required to disclose any injuries or anything in their lives that could give us any more information. When you compare that to the NBA that has a built-in injury report system that plays on the same dimensions of uh, playing area every single night where you have common opponents and guys aren't skipping Maybe they are, you know, a little bit of load management, but like we have golfers go five weeks without playing. It's just not, it's just not comparable to really any other sport. So the theory is basically 27% or more, I'll find a different path. I hate to admit this. Uh, the data doesn't back it up, right? So here's the data. And uh, what I had to do is, again, I had to draw some lines here. I looked at all of the ownership and I broke it down by tier. So it was the $10,000 tier, 9,000, eight, seven, and six. And then I said, if you are 8% more owned than that tier, or I'm sorry, if you are 8% more owned than the tier average ownership, you are chalky. That's where I drew the line. There are flaws. I'll give you the data. You can mess around with it all you want. That's where I drew the line. So it basically ended up being... 380 guys out of about 10,000. So the chalkiest 4%, the chalkiest 4%, our sample size of the chalkiest 4% is 379 golfers. 70% of the time, uh, they gained fantasy points, right? So fantasy points gained. If you're talking about what the average fantasy points were, did they score more? They gained, did they score less? They lost. 70% of the time, they gained fantasy points. The non-chalk in those tiers, the non-chalk, only gained 1.5 fantasy points per start. The chalk gained nearly 17 fantasy points. Not a good start for our fading, our blindly fading chalk uh, theory. Go a little bit further. I was like, I got to find, I've got to find a scenario in which blindly fading the chalk is going to be of value, right? I've got to find it. So I was like, what about expensive chalk? Let's talk about the guys that are just $9,000 or more because you are getting into a situation. There's been, there's been studies done about this before where um, you'd almost rather be chalkier in the $7,000 range 
because there's so many golfers in that range. The industry is fairly good at finding the one or two that are mispriced that are likely to outperform. But when you start going up to the top, $9,000 and above, you're getting the best players in the world. You are uh, much more likely to have any single one of those golfers win the tournament. So the idea and the concept would be eating the chalk lower is generally better. So I wanted to look at the expensive chalk here. It kind of gets worse, right? So 8%, the chalkiest of the expensive guys are gaining 31 fantasy points to the rest of the field. It's getting bigger. It's getting even bigger. What I also did is I looked at the contrarian side of it. I said, okay, okay. What about the expensive guys that are less than 1% or less than 0% notes, a negative to their tier average? It's half of that. They're gaining half of the fantasy points that the chalky guys are. I went further. How about cheap chalk? Uh, the cheap chalk significantly outperforms the cheap contrarian plays by 12 fantasy points on average. I, I mean, I'll, I'll share the data with you. It is a, not a great look for blindly fading chalk, unfortunately. So maybe we need to reassess our situations. Maybe we need to find different ways to be unique. Maybe we need to leave money on the table. Maybe we need unique builds, right? Maybe we need to get a little bit creative because historically, the data does not show as much as I would like it to that blindly fading chalk is the answer, especially $9,000 or more. Let's keep rolling on here. I think I've got two more and we can get out of here. Yeah, let's see. Uh, five Incos Daves asked a question that is specific to the jock market, which I think there is a lot of uh, room for growth here and a lot of room for strategy. And there's a, there's already been an evolution of uh, strategy change in the jock market over the last year. And I think we're going to continue to see that. So he says, in jock market, which dollar range has the highest ROI? And is there any way to identify potential gainers with previous weeks stored in uh, strokes gain data? So we can talk about that. And that's something that's probably a larger conversation for later. But I do have, um, and I'll, I'll actually, so this is actually a page that's on rickrungood.com. There is a, a jock market tool. I actually have a page built in that's hidden for this exact question. I'll, I'll just make it public. So there'll be a tiers tab at the bottom if you want to check this out. But uh, the idea is, I, again, went through every single tier of the IPO, the initial player offering. So that's when you can bid on these shares of golfers. And what we saw when jock market was brand new in the summer of 2020 is that the market was willing to spend 10, 11, $12 on a share of a golfer. And what they found is a lot of times that golfer does not always outperform its expectation. And now what we've seen in the last year or so is a shift to buyers, to bidders starting to target the $5 range the $4 range, the $3 range, where they can find what they perceive to be the best ROIs. Is that true? Short answer, yeah, it's true. So the $10 tier on average, if you're paying $10 or more for a share of a golfer on jock market and you've bought every single one of them, you've lost uh, 4.5% ROI over time. There's only been 75 golfers in the last two years that have eclipsed that mark and a lot less now than there used to be, but that has historically been a losing route. The $9 tier, even worse. You're losing 9.7% over time. If you bought all 84 golfers 
who have ever IPO'd in the $9 range. Eight, same thing. You're, you're down 5%. The, 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 the top end of this has not necessarily been good enough. And that's why we've seen a shift in the marketplace where people are saying, okay, I'm no longer going to pay $13 for John Rahm. If I get John Rahm at $8.50, fine, great, dandy, but I can't pay $13 for him anymore. The $7 range is actually the first of the profitable ranges. So if you've bought every golfer in the $7 range, all 284 of them in the history of the jock market, uh, you're up 2.8%. You're probably outpacing the NASDAQ in the last two years, right? Maybe not two years, maybe the last year. Uh, trust me, I'm aware. The $6 range, you're a loser again. You're down 4.7%. But the $5 range, the $4 range, the $3 range, and the $2 range are all winners. If you've bought every golfer in all of those ranges, you are killing it. And it makes sense. There's the This is the only market in which finishing 40th or better can make you money as long as the golfer outperforms their expectation. And then you get the situations where, I don't know, um, some random guy wins the golf tournament, right? Robert Streb wins. Brian Gay wins. Jim Herman wins. And you have created like a 2,000% ROI. Honor Bon Lahiri finishes second at the players. They're all coming from these ranges. So to put numbers behind it, the $5 tier, if you've bought every single one, you're up 4%. The $4 tier, you're up 5%. The $3 tier, you're up 3.5%. The $2, the penny stock. You want to go down? Be Jordan Belfort? Be the penny stock king? You're up 18%. It's by far the best. If you've bought all 2,000 golfers in the $2 tier in the history of jock market, you are up 18%. You are outperforming blue chips, my friends. You are outperforming blue chips at that rate of return. So uh, I'll make this all available. So it'll be on that jock market Rick Rungood tool, which uh, it'll then update. After, every time I load more data in, it'll update itself. So this will continue to update. I'll add... Uh, like an $11 tier as well, just in case people want to see that. But there's probably not many instances of it. But a really uh, clear-cut case for staying in the $5 or below level of the jock market, playing it every single week, and just piling up your wins over time. Last one. Uh, Matt Martin asks, I'd like to see... Something looking at the putting this year versus last with the use of the green reading books. We are in full-on nerd data mode right now. Seems like it's affecting some guys more than others. Colin Morikawa is someone that comes to mind. So um, this is also a little bit difficult for me, Matt, because again, small sample size for 2022. We also cannot necessarily attribute all of the gains or losses for the calendar year to the greens reading books. We'll never know. We'll never know who's putting better or worse and why. But you want the data? I've got the data for you. Um, I required that this is obviously measured events where we have all the strokes gain putting numbers. It is a minimum of 20 rounds in 2021, a minimum of 20 rounds in 2022. It is not season. It is year. And it's year because uh, January 1st is when they instituted the green reading book ban. Okay, so that's that's why we've drawn the lines. Pure on best improvement, Austin Smotherman. So he's a stroke and uh, a quarter better. That's probably not the guy. I'm looking for guys to play a lot on both tours. So when you start to look at some of 
the best putters from 2021 and how they fared now. A couple stand out to me. Uh, Adam Hadwin, historically very good putter, one of the best putters that we have of the qualified golfers for this. He's actually lost. Oh, no, excuse me. Yes, he's lost over a third of a stroke putting since the green readings uh, books went into effect, the ban on them. There's another problem with this, Matt. Uh, Adam Hadwin's been much improved in his approach play. So he's maybe not giving himself as many bad approaches where he rolls one 40-footer in every two weeks and it inflates his strokes gain putting number. So we've got, we've got flaws here. Uh, this one's kind of interesting to me. Jason Kokrak. So Jason Kokrak was one of the best putters in 2021. He is now tour average. He's uh, down about six-tenths of a stroke per round. That adds up very, very quickly. And I think this, this is probably the biggest one that you could, in theory, attribute to the Greens reading books because he was such a good putter, kind of came out of nowhere. Nothing else really changed. Maybe it's just a small sample size of 29 rounds for Jason Kokrak in 2022. But that, to me, that big of a drop-off would, I, I think, is closer to being an effect of one single aspect like a Greens reading book. Uh, a couple of notables, Sam Burns, great putter in 2021, almost exactly dead on his average in 2022. He has seen uh, very little change. Uh, Dustin Johnson, down just a little bit, great putter in 2021, great putter in 2022. Let me get a couple of notables in here because you asked specifically about Colin Morikawa. Uh, Colin Morikawa has actually gotten better in 2022. So maybe, and it's hard to attribute this to uh, the ban on green reading books because maybe maybe it's freeing him up. Maybe not looking at the slope and maybe that is freeing him up to use a little bit more feel, but he's such a young player. There's going to be a lot of volatility. And there's going to be a lot of change in his metrics over time. A um, couple other notables here. John Rahm, again, hard to attribute this to the greens reading books. He's down big in 2022. He's now a tour average golfer when he was significantly above average in 2021, but we know he's been messing around with different putters. I mean, there's just there's just so much noise in this, Matt. So again, I'll share the data with you. You can go through, you can look at this, and you can determine what's noise and what's not. I think we're going to have a very difficult time determining the greens reading books and the effect on them and the ban on them, uh, just looking at the data year over year. Maybe we can look course over course, courses that have a lot more undulation. Maybe guys relied more on the greens reading books. Uh, maybe not. You know, we're sitting here master's week at a place that's never let you have uh, the greens reading books, right? And and wondering if it is all about experience. Maybe that's what we should do. Maybe we should look at it where year over year, as you gain more experience on a specific green, what are we learning? There's There's probably a lot of ways to look at it and we probably don't have as much information as we would like at the moment. I'm going to put a pin in it there. That was me speaking into the void for 45 minutes about super nerdy, in-depth data from the world of golf. The dozen of you that hung tight till the end probably really enjoyed it, uh, but I enjoyed the research process. So if there is anything else, and I've got, uh, I've got five or six items listed out for kind of next projects, uh, send me some information. I've gotten a couple of that are real. That I've got a couple that are going to take me a year to, to do the research on. Like they're that in depth. Don't be afraid to send those over. I'll include them in a future episode. Uh, we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll make a series out of this. But golf data, love it, and we'll continue to dive into it. Um, send them to me on Twitter. 
at Rick Rungood. Send them to me via email. Send them to me in the form of a five-star rating and review. This has been 300 Yards to Unknown, and we'll catch you next time.